0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Journey Without, The Journey Within. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 8, 2008. 4,000 years ago, a family of Semitic nomads left Ur of the Chaldeans, perhaps in southeastern Iraq, near Nazaria, and settled in Haran, Turkey, on the Syrian border. In Haran, the father, Terah, died. His son, Abraham, received a divine command to continue his journey. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Genesis twelve one believing that he had heard the very voice of God. At the age of 75, we read in Genesis twelve four that Abraham left as the Lord had told him. He couldn't have known it at the time, but when he left his home, he altered human history forever. Abraham left in faith, not knowing where he was going, or even why he was going, except that God had commanded him. He defied both the inner propensities of human nature and the outer pressures of cultural conformity that call us in the opposite direction. Normally we like to journey from the unknown to the known. We want to move from what we don't have to what we think we want and need away from the strange and the unpredictable, and toward the safe and secure. Unsatisfied with mere promises, we demand absolute guarantees. While we demand clarity and act timidly, Abraham acted wholeheartedly without absolute certainty. The story of God's call upon Abraham's life is a call that's repeated to each one of us today. This Abrahamic call from God subverts conventional wisdom and so it can feel counterintuitive. It's a call to move beyond three deeply human and unusually powerful fears. Fear of the unknown that we can't control, ignorance, fear of others who are different from us, inclusion, and fear of powerlessness in the face of impossibilities, impotence. First, God called Abraham to leave his geographic place and everything that was familiar to him. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. So Abraham gathered his family and possessions, left Haran, and set out for the land of Canaan. This story, though, is about more than a change of geography. For the longest and hardest journey is not the journey without, but the journey within. However daunting and strange Abraham found the geography of ancient Canaan, it paled in comparison to the geography of his human heart. When he left Haran for Canaan, Abraham left all that was familiar, all custom and comfort, family and friends, all regularity and rhythm of his life. The only thing he retained of his homeland in Haran was the power of memory. His journey moved from present clarity into a future of genuine and profound ignorance. Abraham journeyed from what he had to what he did not have, from the known to the unknown, from everything that was familiar to all things strange. And so the New Testament commends his subversive obedience to God. We read in Hebrews 11:8 and 9, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. In his journey into the unknown, Abraham embraced his ignorance. He relinquished control. He chose to trust God's promise to bless him in a new and strange place. But this required a second choice on his part. He had to leave not only his geographic place, he had to leave behind his narrow-minded, small-minded parochial vision the tendency in all of us to exclude the strange and the stranger. God gave a staggering promise to this obscure Semitic nomad. In response to his obedience, God would make him the heir of all the world. Notice the simultaneous narrowing and expansion of God's action in human history a movement from the particular to the universal. God called a single individual Abraham and promised that he would inherit the entire earth. There's a progressive expansion in God's promise. We read that God vowed to make him a great nation, Paul then describes Abraham as the father of many nations, Romans 4.17. Then Genesis expands it even further, saying that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham, Genesis 12.3. Once again, the New Testament commentary elucidates this Old Testament story. Through this one man... In the one nation, Israel, we read in Romans 4:16 and 17, God made Abraham the father of us all. And so, in one particular person, God embraced all humanity. Our common tendency is to fear the other, to suspect and marginalize the strange, to dismiss all that's different, from who and what we know. But God called Abraham, and now he calls us to a universal and inclusive embrace of everyone, of all peoples on earth. In Romans 3.29, Paul asked a provocative rhetorical question, Is God the God of Jews only? Jews, of course, identify Abraham as their founding father. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Christians trace the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham. And Muslims revere him as a friend of God, a father of the prophets, and an ancestor of Muhammad. In his singular journey then, Abraham instigated blessings to the entire world. There was one problem about God's promise to bless the entire world through a single individual. Abraham and his wife Sarah were both about 75 years old. They didn't have our knowledge of the biology of human reproduction, but they knew that they were beyond their childbearing years. Humanly speaking, they faced an impossibility that brought them face-to-face with their powerlessness to alter their circumstances. Biologically speaking, barren Sarah and impotent Abraham, we read in Hebrews 11:12, were as good as dead. At first, both Abraham and Sarah scoffed at the idea that she would bear a child and become the mother of nations. But God rebuked them we read in Genesis eighteen fourteen is anything too hard for the Lord? And so Abraham made a counterintuitive and subversive choice. He believed that God had the power to perform what he had promised. He trusted that God is a God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were Romans four seventeen and twenty one. That is to say, Abraham moved beyond his fear of powerlessness to faith that God could, quite literally, make something out of nothing. After a few false starts that included chronic lying about his wife and bearing children by his slave, Hagar, Isaac, the son of promise, was born. When God called him, Abraham subverted conventional wisdom and moved beyond understandable human fears, ignorance, inclusion, and impotence. Instead of lamenting his ignorance and the loss of control, he embarked upon a journey into the unknown. Instead of fearing inclusion of the strange and the outsider, he gave himself to God's promise of a universal blessing for the whole earth. And in the face of his own profound impotence, he believed that God could do the impossible. And in so doing, Abraham became the father of us all. And now for further reflection, how does the journey metaphor speak to you? Where are you on your spiritual journey? Which of Abraham's three challenges resonates most with you? Ignorance, inclusion, or impotence? Reflect on the truth of Romans 4:17 and 21 that God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And meditate upon Hebrews eleven eight and 9. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. For books this week, I review a book called The Elephant and the Dragon, The Rise of India and China, and what it means for all of us. The author is Robin Meredith, New York, W. W. Norton, 2007, 252 pages. A Starbucks at the Great Wall of China? Steven Spielberg hired to help with the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympics in China when a million performers welcomed the world. Did India really move from 300,000 cell phones in 1996 to 150 million cell phones by 2007? And are they now purchasing 7 million mobile phones a month? The answers to those questions are yes, yes, and yes. Welcome to the tectonic economics of China and India that have caused the entire Earth's economics and political landscape to shift before our eyes. In this book, written for a general readership, Robin Meredith blends history, economic analysis, numerous anecdotes, in a blizzard of statistics to explain how this happened and what it means. After 27 ruinous years under Mao that killed 40 million people and decimated not only the economy, but science, art, education, and religion, in 1978, Deng Xiaoping took over in China. No, there would not be political freedoms, but yes there would be radical economic reforms. The results have been startling. Take infrastructure for example. In 1989 China had merely 168 miles of freeways. By 2010 it will have 40,000 miles of freeways. Or exports. By 2004 China was the largest exporter in the world, exporting in a single day more than it sold abroad during the entire year of 1978 when Deng Xiaoping took over. You might picture China as the brawny manufacturing giant. Think of India as the brains of the information and service industries, call answering, computer programming, research and development, data entry, biotech, and so on. They have far more workers who are far better educated and who will work for far less at a higher skill level than almost any country. And there's a long and very competitive line in India for these jobs. When EDS began hiring for its call center in the Mindspace complex, 6,000 people applied for 110 jobs with a starting salary of 250 a month, $3,000 a year for college graduates. No wonder the United States will lose about 3.3 million jobs to offshoring by the year 2010. But not all that glitters is gold, as Robin Meredith points out. While these rising economic tides have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, in India, for example, 81% of the population still lives on $2 a day or less. 93% don't graduate from high school. And is it really such a wonderful thing that a billion Chinese consumers are a so-called tabula rasa for Western advertisers? The economic earthquakes have also caused severe cultural dislocations in gender roles, mass migrations of illiterate peasants to the cities in search of higher paying jobs, income stratification that is increasing the gap between rich and poor, intellectual property theft, horrendous environmental degradation, and unsustainable consumption of natural resources like iron ore and oil. But this is a one-way street, and there's no turning back, not for India, not for China, and not for the shell-shocked United States. So stay tuned, and in the meantime, you might want to upgrade your job skills. Robin Meredith, The Elephant and the Dragon, The Rise of India and China, and what it means for all of us. For film this week, I review a documentary called For the Bible Tells Me So from the year 2007. Don't watch this documentary film if you expect anything like a balanced treatment of homosexuality and Christianity. It's aggressively polemical, it incorporates all the worst examples of Christian hate and extremism, it omits any treatment of gay extremists like you might see in San Francisco's gay pride parade, and in several instances it presents experts without identifying them as aggressively pro-gay. But there is in fact a good reason to watch this film, because it presents the personal stories of five families, without exception, all of whom are deeply Christian, and it shows how they dealt with the news that their kids are gay. Two of the families are what we might call famous. Chrissy Gephardt is the daughter of two-time presidential candidate in the Missouri Congressman Dick Gephardt, and Gene Robinson became the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church. Then there's Jake, who comes from the suburbs of Minneapolis, Tonya, who's an African-American woman who grew up on a dirt road in North Carolina before going to Yale, and then Anna was from Arkansas. These families run the Christian gamut. United Church of Christ... African-American, Lutheran, Catholic, and fundamentalist, and they respond to their child's coming out in different ways. It's a shame that the filmmakers resorted to predictable polemic instead of trusting the power of these deeply moving stories. For the Bible Tells Me So, from the year 2007. And finally, we continue our series of poems by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry was born in 1934 and is well known as a poet, essayist, novelist, and farmer. The title of the poem this week is Sabbath Poem 7, which he wrote in 1982. The clearing rests in song and shade. It is a creature made by old light held in soil and leaf, by human joy and grief, by human work, fidelity of sight and stroke, by rain, by water on the parent stone. We join our work to heaven's gift. Our hope to what is left, that field and woods at last agree in an economy of widest worth. High heaven's kingdom come to earth. Imagine paradise, O dust arise. Sabbath Poem 7 by Wendell Berry. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, June 8, 2008, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.